This morning we come back to uh, the second message in a, a series I started last week. I mentioned last week that we were going to spend a few weeks taking some time and thinking through modern day mantras, if you will, that spell out the belief system of society around us. The culture has formulated a number of these little statements, creedal statements, if you will, of their accepted value system. They're short, they're pithy, they're generally cast in some sort of a positive and uplifting terminology. But as we mentioned last week and started to unfold, these are, these are really lies that are masquerading as profound truth. They are half-truths that are promoting whole lies. Now, if this is the first time you're worshiping with us, this is not typically what we do here on a Sunday. Typically, we spend our time looking at different books of the Bible verse by verse. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew for the last four years and just finished up chapter 20. But before we get into chapter 21, I wanted to take some time to address these particular topics at this particular moment in our culture, taking a few weeks to challenge, if you will, some of these popular proverbs that reverberate through society and, and almost go unchallenged. As I said last week, they are designed to catechize a whole generation in a new kind of civic religion. And so we are taking this, this time to look at these cultural creeds and to measure them against God's Word, and hopefully, if there are some who are naively being drawn into them, to to give an answer to what are really these weak attempts at wisdom and to point people back to the truth. Last week, we, we started by taking a look at one of these little proverbs, love is love. And um, this week, we want to take a, a, a look at another one, uh, one that you often hear, live your truth. That is the fashion of the day, to follow your heart. Really, even from my own childhood, I remember this. I would have some question as I was transitioning from, from adolescence to adulthood. I would be having decisions I was weighing. I would go to my mom and I would ask my mom, you know, what, what do you think? What should, I, what should I do about this? And in, invariably, she would say that to me. Well, just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. And I never knew what it meant. And it was never helpful it sounded wonderful, but I left just as confused as, as always. Now, that was her Reader's Digest view of life. That is the way that so many people navigate through the world. They just trust their own opinions. It's even more bold today. People are out there uh, sort of saying very starkly, don't let anyone define you. Live your truth and never offer explanation. Or do the work to discover your truth or any number of other sort of cliches that are out there. All these phrases meant to sort of reflect this broader skepticism of the whole idea of universal truth that has run throughout our society. In many ways, it's the hallmark of this age to question the whole idea that truth can be known at all 
or if there is a truth that's individualized, it is only your truth, it's not my truth. And anyone who tries to push back against that, they would, they would claim, is just sort of making some sort of power play. You're just trying to control me with your truth. Impose your truth on me. Make me conform to it. As if all truth is individualized. But is there such a thing as individual truth? Does every person have their own truth? It's really the question. Well, to begin answering that, we might just dial back a little bit to the, the soil, you might say, where all of this has sprouted up back in the 1960s to a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida, who introduced a concept known as deconstruction. You'll excuse me if I get a little philosophical for a minute or two, but... But according to Derrida, absolute truth is unattainable through language because, as he would say, you couldn't unravel the link between a text and its meaning. It is unknowable. It's beyond our capabilities because it's so intertwined. He was skeptical that absolute truth could be conveyed through language, and he suggested that words are too narrow to have a, or couldn't be, I should say, narrowed down to have a singular or definite meaning. They're, they're, they're too wily in that sense. They can carry too many connotations, and we can't capture all the connotations. And so Derrida wrote, saying, the speaker's meaning has no more authority than the hearer's interpretation, and thus intention cannot outweigh impact. So for Derrida, if truth did exist, it is not reachable because it is hopelessly lost in words, and those words are always shifting in their meaning. You can never pin them down, and so you can never really know what anything means any longer. Those who would try to impose a truth on you, those who would try to impose a meaning on you, are just trying to bind you for their own purposes. And so Derrida called for people to resist that, resist these imposed meanings and, and deconstruct all of these things that have been handed down to you and shackled you in whatever, whatever means. And so there began this massive enterprise, particularly in continental Europe, uh, but eventually even bleeding over to the States, this massive enterprise at an academic level to try to deconstruct systems of truth. You even hear people today talking about their own deconstructing stories. They deconstructed their faith or they deconstructed their, their culture or whatever it might be. They're sharing these stories online. They're sharing these stories in print and in other forms of media. This process by which they slowly pick apart belief systems that they once held on to and methodically discard the items that they no longer find compelling or appealing or beneficial or whatever it might be, those things eventually bled out of the academy into the arts and into literature and into entertainment so people begin to question the very notion of institutions or ideals that have been handed down to them simply because they were given to them by someone else. All truth, in order to be meaningful, has to be discovered on your own. It has to be, it has to be in, in fact, created on your own. 
stitched together on your own. It can't be filtered through other people because other people are invariably going to distort it for you or against you. And so was born a whole age of relativism, breeding widespread rejection of the truth, a fervent embrace of skepticism, vehemently disdaining all truth claims as some attempt to fit you into someone else's truth or into someone else's story, as they like to say, someone else's meta-narrative. Now, of course, the irony in all this is that it's all promulgated by what? Words. Derrida wrote plenty of words. I don't know how many, but he wrote uh, a number of books and articles throughout his lifetime. His students did the same thing. They promoted all of this through words. And those words were meant to convey meaning the way every human has ever conveyed meaning through conversation. Communication exists because words exist and words exist because words have meanings. To express any kind of idea, any kind of opinion, you must presume that. Otherwise, everything's senseless, right? Those ideas are either accurately representing what you think or they are inaccurately representing when you, what you think. And once you begin to talk about accuracy and inaccuracy, you're talking about truth. Plain and simple. And so in spite of all the sophistry of people like Derrida, truth is and always has been basic to human thought. It's basic to human speech. It's basic to human relationships. Every argument that you might make, every conversation you might engage in, every thought that you even think presupposes that there's such a thing as meaning, which presupposes that there's such a thing as accuracy, which presupposes that there's such a thing as truth. Without the idea of objective truth, the human human mind literally cannot function. So, is there such a thing as individual truth? Can you speak about a truth simply as your truth as opposed to someone else's truth? Well, that should be obvious. To claim some individual truth is to make a claim. And to make a claim is to assert a truth. And to assert anything is to assume a reality of truth. It is, in other words, a self-refuting claim. It's self-evident that when you speak, when you use words, when you intend to convey meaning, that you expect other people to understand the accuracy of that. You expect them to accept truth. Truth isn't something that's individualized. It's just truth. It's the same for you. It's the same for me. It's the same for every person who's ever lived. It's not something you invent. It's not something you create. It's not something that you sort of promulgate on other people by your own sort of distortions, truth is something that exists and something to be discovered. Well, all that presents a question then. If there's only one truth that we all are intended to discover, how do we discover it? How do we know if we have discovered the right truth and and why Do so many people disagree about the truth of so many different things? Well, that's that's a whole other set of questions. Important questions. 
None of them imply that truth doesn't exist, but they do present a dilemma. And to answer that, I want to I want to take some time this morning to think through with you three simple steps to discover truth. Three steps that I, I think that if you walk through to discover truth and to avoid falsehoods will begin to bring incredible meaning and stability and clarity and sanity to your life. Three steps to discover truth. Very basic, found for us in God's word. First of all, this, recognize the father of lies. Recognize the father of lies. That's, that's an important step. Recognize there is a deceiver who is out to deceive you. His name is Satan. Jesus calls him the father of lies in John chapter 8. He's speaking to a group of hypocrites and he says to them in John eight forty four, you are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Very clear. He says this is his character. This is his nature. He is a liar. And when he speaks, he doesn't speak from something coming outside of himself. He speaks from within because that's who he is. He is the source. He's the father of lies. In that sense, he was the first one to tell a lie. He told the first lie that was ever told in all of history and all of creation. When he came into the garden, you may remember, he, he heard that God had given commandments to Adam and Eve. And he begins his cunning deception in Genesis chapter 3 when he asks Eve, has God indeed said you shall eat of any tree of the, uh, of the garden? And then he introduces the lie when she responds, yeah, we can eat of any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, well, uh, when you eat of that, you won't die, like he said. You won't die. That was a lie. And with that one lie, he plunged all humanity, not only first under temptation, but eventually under the curse of sin. And since that time, his, his spiritual attack against the truth has continued. There's been a conflict between him and the truth for all the ages, culminating really in the triumph of relativism today, where so many people have been led to believe that they determine their own truth, that truth is an individual creation, You see, Satan didn't cease those tactics once he left the Garden of Eden. He has has spawned an effort that now spans century and millennia in an attempt to completely eradicate truth, to dupe more and more people into believing lies. And the long arc of his strategy in some ways has been genius because Along with trying to get people just to simply believe lies, he slowly undermined the very foundation of truth. First, by getting people to believe that they must ground truth in something other than God. That it's not right to ground truth in someone that you cannot see, namely God. It has to be something other than God or something other than divine revelation. Second, he got them to believe that What they have to ground the truth in is their own rational or intellectual powers, their own capabilities. Third, he 
He demonstrated to them that their intellect was flawed, their reasoning unreliable, their life in some way corrupted. The truth they were building was therefore shaky and also couldn't be relied upon. And then fourth, he got them to believe that because the truth they had built up was so shaky that they have to reject the idea of truth altogether. He sowed all these seeds of uncertainty over the long arc of history so the notion of truth would eventually crumble on its own and leave us in the modern day of skepticism. Now, with a little more historical detail, you can kind of trace that whole strategy through the impact of five key philosophers beginning all the way back with Aristotle 500 years before the time of Christ. He was born into an ancient world in which in many ways the validity of truth and the validity of human knowledge was just assumed. No one ever questioned it. Things were just true. People just spoke of things that were true. But under the influence of of Plato and, and Socrates, Aristotle began to question how knowledge is acquired. What exactly is the process? How do we know we're justified to say we believe something? Or how do we determine whether a belief is true or not? And it began to develop what has become known as the branch of philosophy known as epistemology. The area of philosophy that explores the nature of knowledge and the nature of truth and how you can justify truth and how you can justify knowledge. And for the next 2,000 years, building on Aristotle, philosophies divine, uh, define all kinds of naturalistic explanations, ways that knowledge is communicated to the human mind until you arrive in the 17th century to the age of the Enlightenment when a French philosopher known as René Descartes wanted to establish truth on pure reason. The one thing that he felt like was reliable And he gave birth to a branch of philosophy known as rationalism, where reason is the only reliable source for test and knowledge. And so Descartes tried to start with a few self-evident truths, such as I think, therefore I am. And then he used those logical deductions to build uh, more truths and more truths and try to build a sophisticated structure of knowledge on that foundation. This Pure rationalism, though, had severe limitations. It was considered too weak to really deal with the most challenging questions of life and of knowledge. And so a third philosopher, Jean Locke, he pressed for something called empiricism. Empiricism believed that true knowledge can be acquired and justified only through the sensory experiences, the things that you see and the things that you hear and taste and touch. All that begins in our lives when we're born. We're born with a blank slate in terms of our minds and we experience all kinds of things through the senses and we begin to build a body of knowledge based on everything that we sense. And so ultimately every idea and every thought is traced back to some sensory experience and every idea has to be backed by some uh, empirical evidence or some empirical uh, uh, object or some empirical study. And so he discounted the idea of knowledge coming from anything else, either from reason or even from supernatural means. Everything 
had to have empirical explanations backed by rationalism. Immanuel Kant, a hundred years later, a fourth philosopher, encountered both of these and felt like both of them had flaws. He tried to reconcile these two philosophies, rationalism and empiricism, and he proposed a system called critical idealism because he believed that the mind doesn't come to everything as a complete blank. There have to be some categories in the human mind for us to understand certain impressions to make sense of them at all. In other words, we are distinct from the animals in some way. We can experience all the same things, but we are able to reason and rationalize in ways that they can't. And so he began to question how these inbred categories of the mind might shape the the world around us. And he introduced this idea of presuppositions, this idea of categories that were already sort of formulated in the mind and hearts of people. This was followed by a fifth philosopher, G.W. Hegel, who promoted what was known as absolute idealism, or some people say transcendental idealism, where he claimed that no concept ever stands alone. It is dependent on some other concept and some other claim. They all build on one another to some fashion, and this creates conflict or sometimes contradiction between what claims to be an independent truth and the de facto dependence that it has on other truths. No truth can be independent. All of them have some sort of relationship to another, and so all of them are somewhat conditional on other factors. And so there's this constant dialogue as you encounter ideas and truths between a thesis and an antithesis leading to a synthesis that never settles. Because once you arrive at synthesis, that synthesis then forms a new process that's constantly in flux and constantly in dialogue with other things. And so there's always your claim, then someone else's claim, and then the supposed truth, which is itself another claim that has to be examined based on other claims and other conditions. And this Hegelian thought process began to take root all across the world. As globalization came along and industrialization came along, nonstop social upheavals that came with all of that, increasing wars, increasing economic hardship and disparity, death tolls that were rising because of the advanced weaponry that we had, not to, men- not to mention the advances of diseases that were now being um, spread all across the globe, wiping out massive populations. People began to complain that all of these philosophies, all of these th- sort of thinkers, all of their empiricism and rationalism and idealism hadn't really done anything for us. Seemed like things were just getting worse. For all of their discussions about truth and how you know truth, how you know right, how you know wrong, how you know what's false, for all those discussions, it didn't seem to clarify anything. Everyone was fighting. Everyone was on different pages. Everything seemed to be sort of 
descending further and further down into just who was the strongest and who had the, the most weapons and the biggest army and all those other things. And so for all the advancements that had come through all of these seasons and all these philosophers, as you entered into the modern age, it seemed like all of these things were falling short of addressing the complexities of human existence and the quest for absolute truth. And the repercussions of this were massive. Disillusionment began to take hold, particularly as World War II engulfed the entire, the entire sphere of earth. Devastating repercussions, particularly within the, within the academic world. Scholars and thinkers had declared that modernity's misguided pursuit of pure truth and pure knowledge had utterly failed. Every attempt to know truth and know knowledge had ended empty. Everyone's approach was discredited. Everyone's quest for knowledge was declared to be dead. And thus was born the postmodern age or the age of relativism. We're on almost every level... We're witnessing now this profound, radical paradigm shift where people are revamping the whole idea of truth itself. If objective truth exists, it cannot be known objectively or with any degree of certainty. And to suggest that you can know it is nothing more than hubris and pride. And so the singular goal of our current era is this deconstruction of the whole idea of truth, the denial of every dogma, the relentless questioning of every axiom, the annihilation of every clear definition, the exaggeration of every ambiguity, the exaltation of mystery and paradox and dysfunction and the cultivation of uncertainty at every level. That's where we live now. As one writer put it, quote, objectivity is an illusion. Nothing is certain. The thought of one person will never speak with too much conviction about anything. Strong convictions about any point of truth are judged supremely arrogant and hopelessly naive. Everyone is entitled to his own truth, end quote. And so Satan has, on one level, succeeded. He got people to believe that they had to find truth in somewhere other than God, he got them to believe that the foundation that they needed to look to was their own mind, their own rational powers. And then through the evil that engulfed the world, he demonstrated to them how hopelessly flawed their reasoning was and how unreliable their own minds were. Then he convinced them that the truth that they had or the truth they believed in was incredibly unreliable and shaky. And then he convinced them that the problem was trying to claim that there was any truth at all. And yet all of this is based on one simple notion. The truth is found in this world rather than from God. The truth is grounded, we might say, in something other than God. That it is you or your reason or your thinking that's the final arbiter of what's true. 
and that you are the judge of that rather than God. But as I said earlier, that's an absurdity because the minute you make a claim to truth and you claim that that truth is objective, you're reaching beyond yourself. You're reaching into a sphere that can validate and verify across all space and time an eternal, unshakable truth. And every one of us knows that we can't do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. I haven't seen everything. I haven't known everything. I haven't experienced everything. You can't do that. You haven't been anywhere. You haven't lived forever. And so people feel plunged into this hopeless cycle of uncertainty and frustration and anxiety. But through all of this, there's always been the shining light in the darkness, which brings us really to the second step of discovering truth, not just recognizing the father of lies, but also learning the truth of the gospel. With the world mired as it is in this confusion and uncertainty, as a church, we unapologetically proclaim the message of God in His Son and in His gospel because it is the truth revealed to men by the revelation of Christ and by the revelation of His Word, validated, we might say, through the resurrection, or as the Scripture says, by the power of God through the resurrection. In fact, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can look just quickly. I have lots of places to look at this morning. I'm sorry you'll have to flip around a lot, but in Hebrews chapter 1, you see this stated very plainly. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The writer says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the Bible unequivocally states that God has spoken. He's spoken through his prophets, that is through the Old Testament, through the word, through the New Testament, and he's spoken through his son. And the message comes with clarity and it comes with authority and it comes with finality. It is his word that upholds everything, the entire world that you experience, anything that might be, might be uh, you might interact with your senses, all of that stuff is established, it is created and it's upheld by Him. And He's attested to it by the arrival of His Son and by the infallible record that is given to us through the Scripture. That's the message of the Gospel, the written Word of God, which Peter tells us is not the fragmentary ideas of men. In fact, if you flip over beyond the book of Hebrews to the book of 2 Peter, Peter says this in chapter 1 of 2 Peter, talking about the, 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 the word of God, the prophetic word, which he brought up in verse 19. In verse 20, he says, it doesn't come from someone's own interpretation, that is their own interpretation of the truth. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Now, this is one of the biblical writers himself telling you exactly how he received what he's giving to you. He received it from the Spirit of God. This isn't his own interpretation of the world. He's not imposing it on you. He didn't create it. He didn't invent it. This is Scripture given by God's Spirit, and it is immutable, it is inviolable, it is authoritative, and it is eternal. And so Peter says, you'll do well. You'll do well, he says in verse 19, to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. This Word of God is truth, given to us by God. Jesus said it himself. He says when he's praying to the Father at one point, he prays to God, sanctify these disciples of mine, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Plain and simple. His word is truth. It is revealed as supernatural and it's true. He says to a group of of, uh, hypocrites in John chapter 10, The Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be broken. It can't be proven to be untrue. It cannot err. It doesn't mislead you. That's its nature. It's the very Word of God revealed from heaven, given to a world lost in confusion. And because it's revealed from heaven, it is the very Word of God. It carries all the characteristics of God. It is true. It is pure. It is holy. It is right. As David says in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired, he says, Are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb? Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. This is a truth. It has come to us from heaven, given to us by God's Spirit, confirmed by our Savior. And it's not just true factually, it encompasses every facet of truth, truth about the world that you see and truth about the world that you can't see, truth about known realities and truth about coming realities, truth about history and truth about the future. It's true in every sense of the word. Because it is the self-expression of the Creator Himself and it corresponds to His nature. It's not subject to the whims of men. That's the Word. It reveals that you have been created by the God of the universe in His own image and for His own purposes. And you are accountable to Him. It reveals that you have violated that purpose and rebelled against Him And you brought on yourself His judgment. He reveals that you must now confess those violations that they are sinful. 
And you have to ask God for mercy and forgiveness. And it reveals that you can trust that he's provided for that forgiveness through the substitutionary death of his son who took that wrath on your behalf. God reveals all that and he calls you to align yourself with those simple realities because they are true. And they fully explain the world around you. They explain the world around you. They explain you. They explain your life. They explain your heartaches. They explain your turmoil. They explain your confusion. They explain, they explain your delights and your joys and your comforts. They fully explain who you are. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword dividing down to the division of bones and marrow and the thoughts and intents of your heart. That's precise. That's precise. To split thoughts from intents, that's very precise. But you know, there's a reason why no one wants to accept any of this. And it's not intellectual. It's not rational. The reasons aren't rational. They're not rejecting all this because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make rational sense. They're not even rejecting it because it doesn't have validation and proof. I mean, there were people who saw Jesus rise from the dead and still rejected all this stuff. The people who reject all this stuff that God has revealed to us reject it not for intellectual reasons, but for moral reasons. It's not that the word is confusing or that the truth is unclear. It's not that it, the word doesn't explain this stuff well enough. It's because there are serious moral implications for accepting it. This is what Jesus said in John 3.19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. That was their motive. They didn't want the truth. They didn't want the light, not because the light was incorrect, but because their deeds were evil. Therefore, he says in verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So Jesus says the people, the reason people reject this truth, again, isn't because it's overly complex or even because it's, it's uh, uh, you know, not reflective of reality. The reason people reject this, this light, is fundamentally moral because they love their sin and so they flee away from this truth they even deny that it exists so that they can continue to hold on to their sin. That's the reason. It's obvious. It's obvious. People reject truth, and particularly they reject objective truth. They don't like, they don't like universal truth because universal truth has implications. They don't come to the truth because they love the darkness 
Because a world with no truth is a world with no absolutes, and a world with no absolutes is a world with no standards, and a world with no standards is a world with no judgment, and a world with no judgment is a world where men and women can believe and do whatever they please without fear of negative consequences, and that's the world they want to live in. Which brings us to the third necessary step in discovering the truth. Begin with the fear of the Lord. Begin with the fear of the Lord. The Bible's very clear on this. It always has been clear. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning. That's where it begins. It doesn't begin with your rationality. It doesn't begin with empiricism. It doesn't begin with your sensory experiences. Knowledge begins with the fear of the Lord. But he says, fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1.7. Fools despise it, they resist it, they reject it, and eventually they pay the consequences for that rejection. They're not teachable, the writer says. They willfully reject and refuse the truth of God, and they become fixated on the correctness of their own opinions. And they'll argue and they'll debate. And they'll wrangle about those. But he urges everyone that true knowledge will not be found without beginning with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Which, by the way, that phrase, the fear of the Lord, consistently in Scripture refers to the things that God reveals about Himself and then our emotional response to that. That's why back in Psalm 19, when the writer was talking about things like the law and the statutes and the commandments and the ordinances, he sticks it in there that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is just one of those things alongside of all the other things that God has revealed about himself. And as I said, it refers to our emotional response to that. And when you begin with the right emotional response to what God has revealed about Himself, not despising what God has revealed, but admiring it, cherishing it. When you begin with that, you begin to acquire true knowledge, true understanding, even true wisdom. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So you begin to have insight into the world around you and into your own life, into your own heart, into your own relationships. As we said, fools reject this. They pretend that anyone who would have that kind of claim of certainty is prideful. They would tell you today that it's more virtuous to have questions rather than to have answers. It's all about just constantly questioning everything, questioning everything. And anybody who ever wants to land on any answer is just full of pride. Skepticism, doubt, those are the real pathways of humility. But really it's not. Really it's just a form of arrogance, questioning God, questioning God's revelation, questioning God's truth, attempting to establish truth in yourself, that's arrogance. That's pride. And when you do that, the Scripture says there are serious 
moral ramifications. When you disassociate yourself from the knowledge of God and from his truth, you begin a process of self-destruction. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can look there. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. He talks about those who he says in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools. Again, denial of spiritual truths comes from not a lack of knowledge, but from an innate and deliberate unbelief. They suppressed these truths, he says. Verse verse 24, eventually he says, God gives them over into the lust of their own hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their own bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Down in verse 29, what's the outcome of this? Well, he says, eventually they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, do not, they, not, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So this is where they end up. They've rejected the knowledge of God. They've tried to establish truth elsewhere. And the very foundations of their life begin to crumble underneath them. They have no place for truth. They can't any longer criticize anyone else. And so what they're doing is they're just giving approval. They're watching the people around them and their lives going down a path of destruction and they're cheering them on. They're applauding them. They're affirming them. They're confirming them. And they're affected by them. They begin to mimic and practice these things because truth doesn't have accountability, you may as well become a pragmatist, someone looking out for yourself, doing all these things that you think in the end are self-serving, but they're self-destructive. Just like the Proverbs, just like Jesus when he talked about people hating the light, if you abandon this biblical definition of truth, unrighteousness, It's the inescapable result. And you see it happening all around us in society as we have over the last 50 years abandoned notions of truth. Every corner of society is coming apart at the seams. And it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on. It doesn't matter if you're on the progressive side. It doesn't matter if you're on the the conservative side. Everywhere, Everywhere you go, people are proclaiming their own truth and they are not interested in God's truth. Truth and knowledge, they're thought thought to be incoherent, no longer accessible. It's every man for himself. 
But that's not the message of the Scripture, and that's not the reality of the world. You can try to live that way, but you can't exist that way. Because as we said, truth is obvious. You try to communicate with words, you're trying to communicate with accuracy. You're talking about accuracy, you're talking about truth. You make a claim, you're claiming a truth. You claim that there is no truth, it's a self-refuting claim. Those things are self-evident. And so we're back to the question, where does truth come from? Well, it comes from the only fixed source in all of creation. It comes from God. Without that, even the most fundamental moral distinctions will be lost. Good and evil, right and wrong, beauty and ugliness, honor and dishonor, they can't exist apart from any fixed order of truth. And fixed order of truth cannot exist apart from God. It's always been the goal of human philosophy, truth without God. Today, people even sort of want some vague spirituality. They want God without truth. Whatever it is, they want some form of philosophy that poses no threat to their sinful self-will, anything that will suit their personal preferences, any way, anything that will make demand for the, their impulses, anything that they can use to justify their pursuit of their own selfish and sinful goals, but it will never work. That's the message of the Scripture. It'll never work. It is a dead-end street. It is a pit that you're running into. You live in a world right now that's bombarding you with this message of deception. It's bombarding you with lies that are camouflaged under wit and humor. But don't be deceived. No matter how it is adorned, it's still a lie. There's only one truth. Truth that comes from God. And for you to ever have hope about genuine relationships, you must have truth. For you to ever have hope of making sense out of the world, you must have truth. For you to ever hope to have meaning in life, you have to have truth. And that truth doesn't change. It doesn't alter. It doesn't accommodate itself to the various seasons and times, cultures and societies. It stands unwavering and it invites you for an eternal reality that God has presented to you. And as I said, it makes sense. It makes total sense. God created. You rebelled along with everyone else. You faced judgment. But God has graciously redeemed. And He will guide you into more truth if you'll follow Him. Father, we're grateful for these reminders. They are simple because they come from You. And your truth is accessible. It is clear and compelling. We know why we resisted it for so long. We resisted it because we loved our sin. And we know that those who are here today and resist it, they're resisting it for the same reason. Plain and simple. They love their sin. And they still hope that they will escape your judgment while clinging to it.
I pray, O oh Lord, that you would make it clear to them that they have no hope of that, that there is no life apart from your life. There's no truth apart from your truth. There's no reality apart from your reality. And your reality calls them to repentance. Today, we not only give you thanks for that truth, but we give you thanks for the truth of the gospel that can rescue us from that kind of darkness. And I pray for those who are here today who are still trapped in it, that you would rescue them, that you would bring them to yourself for the sake of your glory and their blessing. We ask in Christ's name, amen.